Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs> I have had a week. <laughs> I have had a week. Um, something I've not talked at all about on the show is my wife and I have been pregnant. And I think I haven't talked about it because it was just too personal and I didn't want to jinx anything or say anything. I don't know. Um, it, it was too much. It's all been too much. But I had a whole set of ideas for how the show would go when we had our baby. I was going to save up a bunch of episodes and get guest hosts to do a bunch of episodes. It was all going to be really smooth. And then we had our baby six weeks early. Um, we had a bunch of health complications. And that 24 hours, 36 hours was the scariest hours of my entire life. Um, I've never been through anything like that. And thank God uh, my wife is healthy and our baby is amazing. Um, <laughs> uh Everything people say about what an overwhelming experience it is, is true. Um, I, I bring up some of this for two reasons. One is that it was such a comfort to me to read the stories of parents who had their children early, who had premature babies, and everything was okay. So I want to say aloud that this happened to us, and at least so far, thank God, it has been okay. Um, but also because I'll be off the podcast for a while. I've been on paternity leave for a week now. I had um, the Kelton and Furman and Sullivan episodes recorded before this happened. And I'll be off until about the beginning of April. And I've got great guest hosts who are going to be on the show. I've got, and they've got some great interviews lined up, which I'm actually very excited to listen to. And we're going to put up a bunch of uh, favorite episodes of mine. So there will still be podcasts coming out every Monday and Thursday, uh, but they will not be <laughs> new podcasts by me because I will be doing something that uh, I have never done before, which is being a father. So thank you for being here. Uh, and thank you to my first guest host, Jane Koston, who is interviewing Noah Rothman. Hello, I am Jane Koston, senior politics reporter for Vox with a focus on the GOP and conservatism. And something that I have been interested in is the ongoing conversation about quote unquote identity politics and social justice that's taking place among conservatives and on the right. It's a conversation that has a lot of different pieces. Uh, it's a conversation that is deeply tied to contemporary politics and, moreover, a view of many on the right that the left is using, quote unquote, identity politics as a cudgel against the right. And some on the right are responding by embracing their own version of identity politics. And we're seeing that kind of in the formation of the identitarian right. 
so to speak. So to talk about all of this, I thought no one would be better than Noah Rothman. He's an editor at Commentary Magazine, an MSNBC contributor, and author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America, which was released just a couple of weeks ago. And during our conversation, we talk about identity and identity politics, uh, the history of identity politics, how identity politics and race and racism have worked concurrently and concordantly. And I think it was a really interesting and engaging conversation. As always, you can reach us via email at EzraKleinShow at VoxMedia.com. Once again, that is EzraKleinShow at VoxMedia.com. And here is Noah Rothman. Noah Rothman. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. So I I would like to start by noting that uh, we have spoken about this book before. And in fact, I am actually referenced in the acknowledgments. Full disclosure. Yes. Yes. Um, So I wanted to go back and talk about the chapter that I reviewed, do you do you remember our conversation from November 2017? It was a thousand years ago. Um, it was on email, so I'm sure there's yes. a paper trail, but I don't yes, remember it off the top of my head. Yes. So one of the things that we talked about, and I think that is something that has come across in every, conversations we've had about the book and the conversations you've been having about this book more generally, and I'll read you my email. Uh, it was on a specific chapter in the book, uh, Truths and Transgressions. Hi, Noah. Going to get you my thoughts tonight. Right now, my thoughts are that it seems more boilerplate and less thought. The modern social justice movement is infested with cultural revanchists who obsess over restoring what they that which they perceive to have been lost. And I asked, what was lost? What did, say, black trans women have in the 1960s to which they are clutching desperately? And then I also pointed out, a, you had said something about real forgotten America. And I said, you're way better than this. What do you mean by forgotten America? Which one is that? Where is that? And I think in the conversations that you've been having about this book, and you've been having conversations you know, on MSNBC and in a lot of conservative podcasts, because uh, I know you were on Ben Dominic's show uh, over at The Federalist, you know, I feel as if there's a fundamental difference and like a fundamental divide that's taking place right now in reactions to your book. And I think it has to do with not just your book, but the entire conversation of, quote unquote, identity politics and the social justice movement in general. So I wanted to kind of start with why did you write this book and for whom did you write this book? Well, just to briefly address some of the stuff that you talked about there, forgotten America, as it were, is something I'm rather disdainful of. It is a notion that is appealed to by individuals on the far right and the far left to justify a grievance politics, uh, the notion that they have had something robbed from them and that they must appeal to a strong hand in order to restore it. It's a paralyzing construct, one that isn't based in reality, and it justifies a program that I think is actually detrimental to the social fabric. Why I wrote this book and basically the idea for it came to me because it's a lot of conservative bloggers are hostile towards quote-unquote identity politics which is a catch-all broad catch-all contains multitudes of terms um, but generally is that it is uh, incompatible in a lot of ways with an egalitarian ideal to which america aspires an aspirational sentiment that may not necessarily be achieved but it is a worthy aspiration nonetheless and when i was in ukraine on a government-sponsored junket i was there uh, at the uh, invitation of the government pro-western government 
government. We were treated to a conversation with the chief prosecutor, and uh, he was explaining to us rather pointedly why it was not in their interest, and then certainly not in your interest, to prosecute individuals who were implicated in violence in the Maidan revolution on their side. And why would you want us to? They're on our side. This is no kind of justice that I'm familiar with. This looked a lot more like revenge and tribalism, and it struck me that this was pretty much identity politics in practice, an alternative theory of governing organization, societal organization, that is conflictual in many ways with the notion of objective, individualized justice that we see practice in a courtroom. And that's where the social justice phenomenon sort of came to me as more looking like an identity politics and practice that is antithetical in many ways to the conduct of justice as we understand it today, a much more collectivized, tribalized vision of justice. Uh, and I think it's a dangerous philosophy and one I hope to combat. Just to make sure that we're all talking on the same terms, when you say the term identity politics, what do you mean? Yeah, well, it means just about everything, right? I mean, class, race, demography, accidents of birth, individualized and uh, collectivized uh, self-expression. And as I talk about in the book, this book is not an attack on self-actualization or racial awareness. To argue from that position would be to argue ignorance. And I don't argue that. Um, this is about a a governing philosophy, the notion that you can apply identity politics in practice and create an, an ethos out of it that resents individuality and meritocracy, That the notion that your accidents of birth place you on a course in life that is in many ways predestined, that individual agency is a lie. And from that springs a lot of notions that I think are quite dangerous, like the idea that demographic separatism is good explicitly in order to prevent social discomfort, and that colorblindness in institutions is naive at best and dangerous at worst. And to me, these are obstacles on the pathway to addressing real discrimination, institutional prejudice, which which exists. This book is not an effort to litigate legitimate grievances. It's an effort to lit litigate illegitimate efforts to, to address historical grievances. The cure for the ills of bigotry is not more bigotry, and that is what so many social justice advocates on the right and the left prescribe. So who, for whom is this book intended? Because I know that this is, you know, you know I read about conservatism, and the, the use of the term identity politics is something that has come up um, specifically among conservatives over the last couple of years. And I think that, that that has done two things. One, it has inherently racialized the term. And I thought it was interesting that in, in your discussion just now, you use the, you mentioned class. And there, no, there was a discussion uh, between a Heritage Foundation fellow and Tucker Carlson talking about how identity politics is bad and that class-based organizing should be the future of the left, which I thought was an interesting argument for many different reasons. But it's also interesting how the idea of identity politics as being separate from class, that, you know, I think that that's been something that Bernie Sanders has talked about, the idea that, you know, if we had a class-based argument, that would include everyone, and that what is good for African-American workers is also good for white workers. And I think you actually see that a little bit in uh, Jesse Jackson's 1984 presidential campaign, going back a little bit, where he talks about how, you know, white farmers and black men living in urban environments are dealing with similar things, dealing with similar struggles. You know, we're all struggling. So I believe the quote is, we're all kin. So why did you include class as kind of a gatherer in, within identity politics? Because identity politics is just part of the human condition. If you were to say, as as individual tribal 
affiliation goes. I mean, that's just something that's ingrained in the human mind, and it goes back to the you know the original survival instinct, and it's probably something that was an evolutionary trait that helped us survive. Uh, to argue against identity politics in all forms is to argue against the tide. I mean, you're, that's not achievable. The uh, the notion that class should replace identity in general, race, demographic traits, and what have you, is the Marxian ideal. Um, and it's been somewhat, uh, is not replaced, but I guess subsumed in a new uh, Marxian ideal, which is the notion that is at the heart of the, uh, the, the theory of intersectionality, that all conflict, disparate or otherwise, stems from one individual source, and that is race, demographic traits, identity. Uh, originally, in the Marxian notion, it was class is the, is the originator of all conflict. And as a, as a way to unite disparate grievance politics into one movement, it's useful. Um, but as we've seen with the Women's March, it has a tendency to tear these, these organizations that use it as an organizing principle apart uh, because it prescribes seeing your allies on this on your side as sort of a degree to one degree or another as also oppressor because they have benefited in some degree or another from some historical privilege whether they know it or not there's nobody who is going to be in the room who is who is the perfect intersectional uh victim uh everybody shares some traits or another uh, that are perceived as historically beneficial or otherwise. And that's part of the reason why the Women's March movement embraced these people with no constituency whatsoever, uh, because to abandon them would be to legitimize the prejudices against which they claim to be struggling, like, for example, convicted cop killer Asada Shakur, who's living as a fugitive from justice in Cuba, or the minister Louis Farrakhan. Their, their constituencies are so small that it would have been beneficial to disassociate, but intersectionality has rendered the, uh, the sister soldier movement obsolete. You can't do that anymore because you are abandoning a fellow member of this cause. And it's counterproductive. So I want to push back on you a little bit because I, I actually met with uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw a couple of weeks ago in New York um, where she was at Columbia University, uh, Columbia Law School. And she is kind of credited with kind of if not necessarily inventing the concept of intersectionality of kind of public yeah of publicizing it and and her 1989 paper she was she and we had a long conversation about this which will someday turn into a piece she was talking about specific examples of how for example um in say the 19th century south white women were protected from rape Black women were believed to be unable to be raped because they were not, in some courtrooms, considered to be chaste. No black woman. So technically, you could not force a black woman to have sex with you because they were not believed to be chaste. And Crenshaw also uses the example of Sojourner Truth, a legendary black feminist who gave the famous Ain't I a Woman speech because her experience of femininity and womanhood was that of being born a slave and having her children taken away from her while she was talking to white feminists whose experience of you know, discrimination was on the basis generally of their sex. They were kept to, you know, the separate sphere. They were, you know, there was an understanding that like white women needed to be protected and cherished, but also kept from, say, you know, riding on trains or appearing in public, um, you know, without a guard in some ways. So when Crenshaw was talking about intersectionality, she was talking about how no one is just one thing. And I think that that's something you know, we've noted. Um, but I think that it's worthwhile considering that, you know, she was talking about, 
using intersectionality as a prism to think about discrimination in law. And thinking about how there, like, I think in the paper she references a specific case in which there was no means by which black women who at the, who were experiencing both racism and sexism within the workplace could, you know, explain that in a courtroom audience because there were no legal protections on the basis of being black women. And so I want to challenge you on this idea of intersectionality because I think that it's actually an extremely useful way to think about discrimination more broadly, because discrimination happens in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. And I think, to me, intersectionality or thinking of that as a prism to think about discrimination is useful. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, this is in the book explicitly, that as uh, an academic concept and a way to think about how prejudice manifests in the real world and in America in particular, it's a perfectly valid notion. And in fact, it's extremely helpful. Um, As an organizing principle for a political cause, uh, which is a different thing than an academic theory, it has a lot of drawbacks um, and we've identified them. One One of the truths that I identify in that chapter on truths that frustrate social justice activists on the right and the the left to no end, but which is demonstrable and should be agreed with is the notion that there has been racial progress in this country over the last 50 years. And I think going back as far as you went, I mean, it's sort of self-evident that we have come a little bit farther in in, in understanding these sort of things. So when I was talking about this book recently with some people who were pushing back, as you are. Um, one of my interlocutors was a, a young woman, lesbian, graduate from Brown recently, steeped in intersectionality, and she described it as something that was self-empowering um, because it was a way for her to think about not just herself, but her peers, and um, and she applied it to uh, gay bars in which she felt uh, empowered in those spaces and how she, in thinking about them in an intersectional way, um, helped her to navigate her life in a way that was self-actualizing, which is also something that I support. And it struck me that she was really just talking about um, how she felt more at home in non-cis-heteronormative spaces. And that is not exclusionary. They're not segregated. There's just a different way to think about the people in those spaces. Uh, and that's distinct from what we are seeing in a lot of ways on campus, which has abandoned some, and which is migrating into the real world, which has abandoned the notion that steeping yourself in, 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 the, in the color, a college culture rather, and the, and the thing that you're studying and complementing that with a lifestyle choice around it, that's sort of been abandoned in favor of something that I can't think of calling anything else other than segregation, spaces that are exclusive to one demographic or another in order to prevent social discomfort, quote-unquote, uncomfortable learning. Uh, That, to me, is not a productive way in order to advance the kind of dialogue that you and I are having. Well, I I think that when we're talking about segregation, I think that it's worth noting that segregation in general is imposed from above. Right. And, you know, I think that there there are times and spaces for people to, you know, to self-organize. But I, I think it's this interesting. This is being sought from below. That's an important distinction. Yes. I am interested to know why colleges have become such a center and especially specific colleges, because I know you you referenced the um, Yale Halloween incident. You referenced the University of Missouri. And not just it, it's interesting how those have become, you know, they're specific examples of kind of colleges going too far that have become almost hagiographic on the right, that they're just something you, know, you can reference them while most people in general 
perhaps a lot of people listening to this podcast may have gone to Yale, but I did not go to Yale. And in general, most people do not go to Yale. And so I understand the importance of, you know, I've talked to other conservatives about this, that this idea that college campuses are kind of the laboratory for what comes later in, you know, kind of in common cultural conversations. But College campuses are also where people are, one, in college. So they are generally between the ages of 18 and 22, which is not, as we have learned recently, is not always our tip-top time of human development. But also, I feel as if there is a sense that while talking about colleges a lot, we're getting away from how most people experience these issues, that talking about something that happened at Yale or at Evergreen State College or at the University of Missouri is not talking about college campuses more broadly. It's not talking about community colleges, but it's also not talking about the experiences of most people. And I think that there is a tendency on the right to extrapolate, this is happening at this small campus that you have never heard of, but this is what the left is doing. So what are your thoughts on that? Why is kind of the idea that social justice run amok on college campuses, why is that such a major theme on the right? Because I, I thought it was interesting. You also mentioned later in the book when you talk about um, you know, William F. Buckley and kind of William F. Buckley's battle against the John Birch Society. You talk about how he, in order to get people on his side before he kind of announced he wanted to get rid of the Birchers in some ways, he talked about kind of denigrated popular media. And I feel as if popular media and college campuses have long been kind of hobby horse cudgels among many on the right. And I was interested to kind of get your thoughts on why the focus on college campuses. So there's a lot to unpack there. You you said a bunch. First, um, you write that I think that there is a valid criticism of the right that they overemphasize the the activities on college campuses among students. Uh, however, um, this is not a book on college campuses. Right. Uh, it takes a, it takes some evidence from what we're seeing percolate on college campuses. But the book demonstrates, I think, as much as can be demonstrated, that these ideas are migrating into daily life, that they are affecting how businesses structure themselves, how capitalism operates, how market forces operate, how people interact in their daily life. It has transformed academia, but it is also transforming politics and virtually every aspect of society. It is more paramount and and more prominent on college campuses among students, but it is not exclusive to students. We're also talking about administrators and faculty. Uh, So it's not as though this is limited to quote unquote kids. We're talking about adults. And the phenomenon, if we choose to ignore it, has migrated off college campuses into our daily life. And in particular, I think that one of the, um, some of this stuff is pretty heavy in this book, in fact, most of it. But there's a chapter on there on just how gullible these ideas make people and how willing to be ma- uh, manipulated by, for example, brands, uh, the social justice nostrums are. This is not politics writ large. It doesn't have anything to do with legislative affairs. It's not c- about the Constitution. It's not really about history. It's about performative politics, wearing your politics quite literally on your sleeve or in your shoes in some cases. Uh, and that is what led to the phenomenon of what we've seen now as woke capitalism, cap- brands that have embraced cultural 
grievances, not really politics per se, but it masquerades as politics. And people love it on the right and the left. They adore it. And I theorize that it's because it, it gives you the opportunity to act like you're participating in politics without having to do any of the real homework. Um, so you're engaged in politics by buying a, buying a shoe or a, a particular toothpaste or something like that, because it's displaying the kind of politics you want to see. And the detriment there is evident in the phenomenon of fearless girl which we saw right. as a statue down in, in lower Manhattan that was fetid by Democratic politicians as a real challenge to the patriarchy. Bill de Blasio said that men were really offended by this. It was hard to find them, but he was sure they were very offended by this. They just were waiting to be very upset about They're a delay. They're usually ad. offended at quite a lot of things. <laughs> so it turns out, though, that this this allowed this, the sponsor, State Street Global Advisors, to escape a lot of scrutiny that it deserved. If you looked at some of its pamphlets when it was talking about investing to women, for example, it just appealed to raw stereotypes. It said that, you know, you really shouldn't think too hard or use big words, basically, you know, just appeal to emotion when you're talking to female investors, which is a, a negative stereotype. And eventually we saw after Department of Labor audit that this firm had been systematically discriminating against its female and African-American employees settled to the tune of five million dollars. But the statue, just the, the deference that it displayed to social justice nostrums, allowed it to evade the kind of scrutiny that it really deserved from the kind of people who are very attuned to this kind of thing. Um, that's manipulation and gullibility. And the people who want to see this this kind of change in the world should be aware of the fact that they are being manipulated merely by tugging on the heartstrings and invoking social justice axioms. So I want to back up a little bit because we kind of talked about the idea of identity politics. And there are two points in which you talk about American political history and identity politics. On page 232, you write, it's not uncommon to hear young social justice advocates accept as fact the idea that American political history, history in general, really, is just a story of identity politics. But, you know, you do make the point earlier uh, on page 33 that identity politics in America is not new and is always conflicted with the founding ideals of the republic and the contradictory notions of egalitarianism and slavery were baked into America's founding documents. So, one could argue that American political history is, in some ways, the story of identity politics, because, you know, I think that it's been so interesting for me learning more about the founding fathers, how that conflict, some of them had to wrangle with it. But at the same time, you know, Thomas Jefferson was completely fine with advocating for equality and justice while also believing that black people don't need as much sleep and that black people will never come up with good poetry because though they are sexually ardent, they can't understand love. And so I would argue that the history of America is inherently a history of identity politics because very few other countries have attempted to bring together so many different groups of people. You know, you avoid in some ways identity politics when you have a society that is made up of largely one identity. And then you start breaking down into kind of what we saw in you and you reference this in the book, like the centuries of European wars that were largely about people who looked who basically were different kinds of Catholics or different kinds of Protestants. So I would be interested to know if identity politics, it's not new and it's kind of baked into what America is, why is it not then 
the American story in general. Well, it, well, it's not the American story in general, obviously. There's, there's multiple strains, as you say. And in that chapter, the history chapter, so I'm trying to get at how uh, somebody in the early republic would have seen identity. And they just simply would not have seen identity in the way we see identity. Um, so it was identity politics, but not right. a kind that we would recognize. And they would think of it more as uh, sort of re- republican virtues and much more ideological, even though ideology had a completely different definition in the colonial period. Um, so they would not necessarily view, while they were, you know, steeped in identity politics, they wouldn't view it as such because they wouldn't have seen African-Americans as an identity or right. even a race or exactly. as a people. Yeah. Um, and Iberian uh, people who uh, descended from the Iberian Peninsula who were populating uh, Central America, you know, they were engaged, for example, during the Venezuelan Revolution for Independence. They were engaged in, uh, as for as historian Catelyn Fitzpatrick demonstrated, they were engaged in sort of support for this revolutionary struggle. And the revolutionary struggle in and of itself was, was demonstration of uh, sort of a higher plane of thought uh, among certain factions in the, in the early uh, American post-colonial period. But the identity aspect of that was more anti-Catholicism, like the the people who were frustrated by that and and didn't trust the uh, the Venezuelan revolutions, just really thought that Catholicism was incompatible with republicanism. So it was less about identity as we see it today, as skin tone and demographic traits, and much more about religion, as you say, identity, but a different conception right. of it. So when modern social justice advocates have a real problem with the notion of the American founding ideal, because the American founding ideal, this you know pure egalitarianism has never been realized, I said that you've misunderstood the word ideal. Ideal is something to which you aspire. It's an aspiration. It's not something you will ever achieve. It is merely something to which you should aspire towards. And that doesn't, re- because you fail to achieve it, that doesn't render the ideal bad or wrong or failed, it simply means that we are human beings and we are imperfect practitioners of, uh, of the political arts. I think that when uh, Stacey Abrams wrote about identity politics for foreign affairs, um, and she said that identity politics, it was not something that minority groups chose. It was something that was kind of foisted upon them. And you talked about this a little bit um, in the book uh, when you talk about the civil rights movement. I was intrigued because I think that a lot of the pushback you've been getting is that calls to, for one thing, people have been doing identity politics, not even just in law or in how Americans have actually lived, but in political campaigns since time immemorial. That identity politics, specifically appealing to white identity politics, has been something that people have been doing, um, you know, both Democrats and Republicans for half a century. Um, you know, you no, could, more, yeah, well, I mean, yes, but I, I was mostly referring to, you know, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, you it know, is the primordial form of identity politics in America. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think that there is a strain of kind of reaction to your book that, or when conservatives talk about identity politics at all, that identity politics becomes a problem or objectionable when non-white people are doing it. And I think that that's something that, you know, I've spoken with a lot of conservatives about who obviously disagree with that. But I'd be interested to get your take because when you see uh, someone like Mark Lilla or others who are you you know holding up, say, Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton as examples of presidents who looked past identity, when you look at 
Clinton's support of, say, you know, that particular brand of welfare reform or kind of the toughness of the war on drugs and kind of war on crime, so to speak, you see an identity politics element to that and how that was pitched to white audiences as opposed to non-white audiences. So I would be interested to hear your response to kind of, it seems to, I think, a lot of people that conservative concerns about identity politics are conservative concerns about non-white people thinking and talking about identity instead of aspiring to a version of colorblindness that some would argue kind of renders what is interesting and different, the patchwork of America, renders that moot. Yeah, I think you're painting with a broader brush than is fair, to be honest. Um, Conservatism properly understood, I think, rejects the kind of uh, exacerbating of, of differences along uh, identity lines that the the right does and in general the broader right which isn't necessarily conservative as you know yes. and this is an argument this book is an argument in favor of consistency um it's rather subversive in that sense that if you're a conservative who thinks you're picking up a red meat book and you're inclined to support some of the 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 ideas about identity that are embraced by folks like Tucker Carlson on Fox News, then you're going to be very disappointed because this is an argument against a lot of that stuff. Um, Identity politics, as conservatives have always known, is a very powerful organizing force, especially the the brand of it that preaches victimization, the notion that you are not in command of your own destiny and that there are forces at work that are ill-defined and omnipotent but unseen that have taken from you that which should be restored. That's a powerful organizing tool. And uh, in Republicans in the age of Trump has discovered its power and uh, the the effect that it can have on the electorate. And I think this is an extremely dangerous point of view. And just because we rail against it on the left doesn't mean we should adopt a brand of it for ourselves. So this is a look in the mirror. The extent to which the Republican right, not necessarily the conservative right, although some are tempted by it, um, have embraced these ideas, uh, I think they're dangerous. And this is an effort to call that what it is. So can you explain a little bit more? You, you make the point that that grievance culture is philosophically alien to conservatism, but it is not obviously alien to conservatives. Can you talk a little bit about that difference? Because I think that that is something, you know, I've been writing a lot about conservative populism and thinking a lot about conservative populism, talking pretty much to anyone who will listen about conservative populism. It's the wave of the future. It's where everything's going. Um, I think I, you know, I want to explain a little bit more, have you explained a little bit more that conservatism and people who think of themselves as being conservative often hold very different positions on specific issues. And I think this is one of them. And you, you saw this a little bit during the Trump campaign, that part of the Trump pitch was more or less an implicit argument for a welfare state for white people. And that this would be the time to kind of settle grievances that some white voters had with Black Lives Matter or this idea that an African-American president somehow made whiteness secondary in some sense. And so I'm interested because, you know, you, you make this important point about conservatism, but can you talk a little bit about that difference between kind of conservatism and conservatives? Because while it's alien, again, to conservatism, you're seeing more and more people who think of themselves as being conservatives and who, you know, think of themselves very much on the right, really leaning into this kind of identity-driven argument. Well, I mean, I think we risk overstating the, the level of how implicit these uh, 
contentions were. I mean, Donald Trump takes it on the chin in this book for failing to properly uh, condemn racism when he was presented with a pretty easy opportunity to do so and therefore justified and legitimized some pretty ugly elements that came to the fore as a result, thinking that their noxious ideology wasn't as uh, marginal as they had previously believed it to be. And he deserves castigation for that. However, if we are talking about rallying behind identity as opposed to ideology, then you're going to have to indict literally every political movement that assembles a 50 plus one coalition in one sense or another as racist. And I'm not prepared to do that. And I don't think that's true. Um, the voters who rallied to Donald Trump, who perceive themselves to be uh, members of his coalition, share a lot of disparate traits. And I don't think any of them would would necessarily say or all of them would necessarily say they they are or even are unconsciously receptive to uh, racialized arguments. And I think the left sees a lot of racialized arguments in broader terms in, in an uncharitable fashion in a lot of ways. Um, they can they have a tendency to over inflate those arguments, and especially when we're presented with somebody like Donald Trump, who is so explicit that we don't have to divine his intention in a lot of ways. We don't have to go through dog whistles. The dog whistles have been uh, subsumed into a much broader call to action. Uh, and so if you were talking about, for example, if you're if you're painting the brush that Donald Trump's winning coalition of voters, for example, many of whom were previously Democratic voters or identified in class terms, um, and uh, divining in their consciousness some kind of latent racism, um, that to me is uh, priestcraft. It's mysticism. Um, and I think it's it alienates uh, members of the of the American political class, the voting class, who you need in order to form a, a governing coalition, um, and a lot of uh, and this is again not an argument for ignorance. I think we all need to have a conversation and identify some of the ways in which perhaps we haven't thought about the ways that we think as being racialized, and that's the only way to do that is by having a dialogue. Uh, but I, I do think the left goes a little too far often, explicitly in saying that the entire uh, coalition of Trump voters, many of whom share a lot of diff disparate, particularly socioeconomic traits, um, our members are, are energized by racial animus. Uh, and then I argue in the book that it's just not fair and not true. So I am at that point in the book, and you talk about the Trump campaign was evidence that white racism remains a potent cultural force, but the Trump presidency has shown it is not a dominant cultural force. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think you make the point about how, you know, the courts have checked the Trump administration and, you know, the Justice Department is still somewhat going against negative discrimination. But I would argue that people have been extremely angry at the courts for attempting to say, stop the uh, quote-unquote Muslim ban. And I'd say that there is potency still matters. Obviously, you know, dominance is a different term, but I'd be interested to hear you kind of talk about that because I think that just because the Trump presidency has been very, very bad at whatever it's attempted to do, especially with regard to, say, immigration, does not mean that people wanted, people did not want them to do the thing they were bad at doing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, to, to I don't think that there's a a real uh, critical mass of support for the Muslim ban. I'm not sure if I've seen a poll that suggests that exists. Um, the courts eventually found over the course of three iterations that you could eventually do this in terms of presidential powers. It was constitutional so long as it wasn't a, a religious test. And uh, once the Trump administration crafted, a, a, I think it was version three, that sufficed for not being a religious test, um, then they, they, they passed that. And that's an argument about constitutional authority and not an argument about social progress. 
class. And there are many examples, many of which are in the book, about how uh, the the racialized uh, elements of Donald Trump's campaign were detrimental to his success, not instrumental to it. And Mark Lila demonstrates that actually pretty authoritatively um, using uh, citing statistics over the course of the Trump campaign, where when he was dabbling when these uh, really noxious attempts to, to divide the electorate, that his support actually fell. And you have a couple other examples over the course of the Trump presidency, um, notably the, the way in which Republicans turn against him whenever he becomes especially Trumpian. The dirty little secret of the Trump presidency is Trump gets his highest marks from Republicans when he's doing pretty bland, conventional Republican stuff. And just recently, a couple of months ago, we had the first step back passed by a Republican Congress signed into a, by a Republican president. It doesn't go as nearly as far as activists think it should. And they're right. It's literally called the first step act, but a step in the right direction to acknowledge, albeit tacitly, that there are racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And that would not have occurred. It would not have formed the kind of bipartisan coalition in support of that acknowledgement, a really positive acknowledgement, uh, if the activist class was telling uh, the, the Republicans who passed and signed this legislation to sit down, shut up, and check their privilege. Um, that's a, that's a, an obstacle on the pathway to addressing the kind of institutional racial discrimination that I think we all need to divine, see in, see in society, acknowledge, and, and address. So what, during the process of writing this book, was there something that you learned from the quote-unquote you know, social justice advocates Something that you learned from reading them that you did not expect or that you found that you agreed with more than you expected? Well, I mean, the book was originally about the left. Right. Uh, and it became about as much about the maybe 60-40, uh, as much about the right as it is the left. I mean, these are distinctions that I declined to draw. So many on the on the social justice left mirror in many ways the heightened racial consciousness, the paranoia, the uh, the frustration with America's founding ideals, these paralyzing myths of grievance ideology that I think they, they're reflections of one another in a funhouse mirror. And that led me to conclude that the narcissism of small difference is part of the reason why we're seeing these people fighting in the streets. Um, we, were, we might have been able to avoid Charlottesville had we acknowledged Sacramento a year prior, in which literally fascists rallying under fascist flags, white nationalists, and people rallying beneath hammer and sickle banners were knifing each other in the streets of California. Um, we just didn't talk about it. It just sort of passed through the national consciousness like an apparition. I don't think we really wanted to acknowledge what was happening. But the time for not acknowledging what is happening is past. And this is a book to address the many ways in which we're facing a pretty dangerous future if we don't acknowledge these fringes, however fringy they may be, deserve to be consigned back to the margins from which they came. So why did you want originally to focus the book uh, on the left? Well, identity politics in, in practice is primarily a phenomenon of the left. Um, it's much more predominant as a as a governing ethos, as something that is an organizing principle. They talk much more about it, much more openly. Um, but as you say... And as I discovered, um, there's a much more implicit element on the right um, that is, uh, and I think you really have to talk about these things as though they, what they are. They are fringes. We're not talking about the center, the broadest critical mass center of the, the, the coalitions on the right and the left, though they draw from these ideas. They're beginning to pick and choose. And I think they draw more and more from these pools of dangerous ideas. And that's part of the reason why I wrote the book is to address what those ideas are and provide means by which we can stigmatize them. So how did writing this book impact your view of contemporary politics? Because I think that, you know, the more I have 
thought about the concept of identity politics, it is intriguing to me the way in which efforts to get away from quote-unquote identity politics, which in my view tends to be people talking about in general, like race and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity. Using that as an organizing principle versus using class as an organizing principle, how that tension between the two works out is has been really interesting to me. And I think that you're writing this book and attempting in some ways to say a pox on both their houses. But you're also thinking in terms of, you know, how can I alleviate or how can I think about this subject in a way that makes our politics better? So towards that end, you know, what did you think that you learned from writing this book that you think could be should be introduced into like everyday politics? Well, I mean, it's much more of a, of a way of thinking about society and, uh, and inter- interpersonal relations. I mean, first of all, like one of the things that I encounter when I'm talking to the right and the left who are skeptical of the notions that I'm introducing in this book is that basically they think my identity politics is good. And the other guy's identity politics, yeah, we all agree that's really bad. But mine, we can carve out a space for that one, right? Right. Um, and I, I, and I, to, again, as I say, To suggest that we can never have identity politics in this country is a utopian ideal. I don't even know if it'd be ideal at all, but it's certainly not feasible. And it's an attack on human nature. However, I do think it conflicts inherently with the egalitarian ideals that were advanced in the the Constitution and the founding. And that the institutions that are supposed to meet out this kind of justice, and we haven't even talked about social justice as a theory, which we should probably get into briefly. So right. um, social justice originates out of the Catholic Church in the 19th century is really ident- a response to the Protestant Enlightenment as sort of an alternative theory of social organization um, because the Catholic Church's experience with the Enlightenment in France was much different from the experience in Scotland and England. Uh, they their, their idea of the Enlightenment was forged in the fires of the French Revolution when Catholic priests were being killed and idols to self-worship being erected. So they had a very suspicious view of Enlightenment thinking, and justifiably so. And so social justice, as they understood it, was really an idea to think about charity. In the uh, 1960s and late 1970s, John Rawls put a lot of meat on these bones when he identified and really created some constructs for you to think about justice in in useful utilitarian terms. So if you think about justice as a finite commodity without a supply chain, that as much as there is in the world right now exists and it must be distributed. But how do you distribute it fairly? So you need an enlightened distributor operating an enlightened institution. But how does that enlightened distributor distribute fairly? So he needs to operate behind a theoretical construct called the veil of ignorance, which prevents him from uh, satisfying his biases, conscious or otherwise, when operating this, this distribution. For modern social justice activists, right and left, who resent colorblindness as an immoral and anti scientific ideal, the veil of ignorance is an obstacle to creating a just and equitable distribution of justice because some people deserve more justice than others. You can't have an equitable distribution without identifying who the historically oppressed are, who their oppressors are, who deserves to be lifted up, who deserves to be tamped down, who is benefiting from historical conditions that they may not even be aware of, and who is suffering from them. Uh, And the institutions in this country are not equipped to do that. They do not mete out justice like that. 
And so I believe that's going to continue to frustrate these activists to a point in which, and I think that we're seeing it, more people are engaging in violence um, because you have, you must resolve to attack the foundations of these institutions if they are so immoral and so unresponsive to the sort of things that you think are moral existential questions um, that you cannot resolve to. Some people will simply disengage, but others will will resolve to affect extra political means to address the kind of things that they think are absolute moral imperatives. So I'm interested you referenced Hayek because uh, Friedrich Hayek, libertarian economist, um, his concept was about the idea of social justice was not so much the second word, but the first word, the idea of social. Um, he, he was not, as you write in the book, he was not a big fan of social anything. And you quote him uh, on Firing Line with William F. Buckley as saying that social justice is empty and meaningless, a quasi-religious belief with no content whatsoever. So first and foremost, uh, my first question on this is, this is something that I think you've used this term and other conservatives have used this term, that social justice, in your view, is for some a replacement for religion. Well, um, it has vestigial religious traits, as we discussed. Right, yes. I mean, it's that's not a figment of anybody's imagination. Right, clearly. But I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, the idea. And, you know, I think that this is something that I'm starting to see a little bit in reaction to, say, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or kind of like the rise of, I was going to say new left, but I'm pretty sure the old new left kind of trademarked that. So it's the new new left. The idea that they are, you know, this is a replacement in some ways for religion writ large. And I, I was kind of interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think it exhibits some theological traits, most certainly, because a lot of these principles are inviolable in their minds, moral imperatives, as we discussed. And the chapter on truths and transgressions gets at this a little bit, that these sociological conditions, which are observable, the three traits being, um, the three truths being that racism in this country has improved or rather racial uh, distinctions have improved and it's not as it's racism is not as bad today as it was 50 years ago that there is inherent uh, genes that are associated with being born male or female and that race exists along a spectrum as opposed to the other way around that that gender exists on a spectrum and race is immutable and conveys immutable traits uh, and the notion that immigrants are assimilating at rates in, that are comparable to rates in the past. The sociology demonstrates that. I mean, Tom Brokaw recently got in a lot of trouble for saying precisely the opposite. It is an idea that is prevalent, um, but there's no sociology and no science to back it up. And when you say these things to people and you can support them pretty, pretty soundly, uh, they get very angry um, because this is an attack on an idea that is central to a worldview. And that, to me, is an exhibition of faith. Um, it's a sort of reaction that you would see in somebody for whom this is a, this is a dogma. Uh, and that is part of why I attack it in, in, in ways that I'm dying to acknowledge. I'm tap dancing all over third rails here. Right. But that's necessary in order to have the kind of dialogue that I think doesn't spare any feelings, but gets at some inherent truths. I, I want to go back to the idea of the social and social justice, because right. I think that, you know, I spoke uh, at the University of Michigan recently and had a conversation on this very subject of, you know, a student asked me, why do conservatives object to the concept of social justice? And I pointed to this as saying it's not so much the term justice as the idea of social. I think that there is 
within specifically libertarianism. And it's interesting that you're starting to see a break between many conservatives and libertarian or libertarianism writ large. Um, you know, you're starting to hear that from folks like Tucker Carlson and others. But there is a sense in Hayek's view of social justice that the idea of groups and the idea of group politics is inherently in some ways problematic. And I think it's interesting because I think that that is something that you see from a lot of folks, particularly conservatives, that the ideal idea of the social part, the idea that this is about large groups of people and how they interact with each other goes against the idea that, you know, we're each individuals and we should operate on an individual case-by-case basis. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so Hayek had a kind of a pithy phrase, and there's some truth to it, but he was just really being, uh, you know, kind of catching, creating a term for himself, um, was that the notion that <clears throat> appending the word social onto anything destroys the meaning of the word it modifies. Uh, and uh, there's an element of truth to that. What his contention with Rawls was when he was writing the uh, the attack on Rawls's view was that and it, the minute an institution dedicates itself to a Rawlsian objective, the minute an institution dedicates itself to distributing justice in order to and treating individuals not as individuals and treating individuals unequally in order to achieve equality, it fails on Rawlsian terms. It becomes an unjust institution. Um, and he goes into a lot of theoretical detail as to why. Uh, and I, I'm persuaded by those arguments because in order to achieve collective justice, you have to ignore individuality and individual circumstances. And that's, again, antithetical to the egalitarian ideas that are at the heart of the conduct of justice as we've seen it in this country. There's particular examples in this book, and I don't necessarily need to go into them. But a foundational notion of English common law is under assault in the idea that you can achieve collective justice. There are times in a nation's history when it must appeal to extrajudicial institutions in order to achieve true justice. And this country has seen them in the post-Civil uh, War period and Reconstruction. And elsewhere in the, in the world, you see these extrajudicial institutions that treat people as groups and exist outside the Anglo-American idea of what a courtroom procedure looks right. like. Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the, South Africa, Right, in the Guinica Courts. And this is not a post-conflict society. Right. That is an idea that I think is a frustrating one to social justice advocates because it contends that that there has been racial progress in this society. But if you believe that this society is a post-conflict society and will never emerge from that conflict, then yes, extrajudicial institutions to affect collective justice and ignore individuality are necessary prescriptions to affect true equality. I just think this is a, a self-justifying myth in order to uh, advocate for a particular program. It's interesting because this book is blurbed by Ben Shapiro uh, John Pudhortz, who's your editor at Commentary, uh, Dana Prino, press secretary to President George W. Bush, and Jonah Goldberg, who's over at National Review and author of Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Politics. Two more uh, that have been the back of the, the, the thing. I couldn't fit them all in the back. Joe, okay. Joe Scarborough okay. and uh, Jamie Kerchick, who's over at Brookings. Right. So I, I am saying this based purely on the book jacket for this current edition, that this book is in a lot of ways, you know, you, you mentioned how that if you picked this up and assumed it was going to be red meat for the red base, they were, people were going to be disappointed. But for liberals and folks on the left who are interested in reading this book, 
what do you want them to take from it? Because I think, you know, there's been this conversation that we're having recently about centrism and the idea of centrism. And, you know, I I have a lot of my own thoughts on centrism as a political project, Um, namely that it's it's not all of Twitter hates centrism. Yes. Or everyone thinks they're centrist and their opposition is secretly insane. Um, but I, I was interested to hear what you you know what you would want a liberal leaning audience or liberal reading leading readers to take from this. Yeah. So you invoked the new left earlier, and I think that's a really apt invocation because what we've seen embraced more and more by the fringes that I'm very explicitly attacking here is a Marcusean line of thinking that tolerance requires intolerance to certain views. And I think just about all the views that are that are elicited in this book, with the exception of the attacks on the alt-right, would, would qualify under Marcusean line of thought for censorship in order to achieve this sort of just society. Um, I'm hoping that classical liberals will pick up this book and find arguments that they may agree with and may not agree with, but that are necessary and cannot be ignored. I didn't want to write a book that the social justice movement would like. I wanted to write a book that they couldn't ignore. And uh, hopefully I've achieved that. How do you think you made this book into something that advocates of social justice could not ignore? Um, Because I took it seriously. And quite frankly, a lot of folks on the right don't. And you you say that, you know, the, the, the right sort of overinflates and overemphasizes what happens on campus. They do, but they don't take it as seriously as I think you might think they do. And these are objects of scorn and ridicule. Um, but for a lot of a lot on the right, a lot of folks on the right who do this, who consume these kind of commentaries, they don't view this as an existential threat, nor do I. But the rate at which the ideas that are incubating on college campuses are migrating into the, the regular world, the real world, and in how we, businesses structure themselves and how it's affecting our politics demonstrates that we maybe should be taking these ideas a little bit more seriously. Um, I think, you know, Bob Novak was probably the last person to write a, a serious book from the right on social justice. Uh, it's time for a reboot because these ideas have been dormant for some time, but they're catching on. So something I'm interested in, um, just even kind of stepping aside from the book a little bit, is you, know, you, you are a conservative writer writing for conservative audiences. What has been the biggest shift you've seen over the last, say, year, year and a half of what you are hearing from conservatives who read you? Because I think that you occupy a very interesting space within conservatism in that you are, well, I believe the term is center right. Is that is that the term? Well, I think most people are in the center right or left. I think no one no one wants to believe that they're actually in the center, but um, I, I think that you you do occupy that space. So I'd be curious what you are hearing from conservatives who read you, and has anything changed that you're hearing about from conservatives? I mean, the book's only been out a week. It really right. feels like it's been a month. But I mean, uh, I mean, kind of on a larger scale, because I'm interested because you you are a conservative writer writing a book about identity politics at, that does critique the right, but is generally more focused on, you know, identity politics on the left. But I'm interested, one, you know, how did what you're hearing from people who read you impact this book? And what are you hearing from people who read you more generally that is changing your view of what the conservative movement looks like right now? I don't think anything's changing my view of what the conservative movement looks like right now. I suppose, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I really don't want to speculate too much, but um, so I'm not going only to friendly audiences with this book. Right. Um, you know, I opened up with 
uh, opened up the book tour with a couple of appearances on Morning Joe, which were very educational. I mean, if you looked at Twitter, it looked, people would think it was, you know, the WWE. Right. And, and Tiffany Cross hit me over the head with a folding chair. I mean, right. it was actually a conversation. Yeah, I, I, uh, I watched the full 30-minute conversation, and it was appallingly tame. <laughs> Twitter, told, like, Twitter told me that I was getting, like, the 1981 Ice Bowl, and that's not what I got. <laughs> I know. Um, so I, I think I am of more value to put it in a rather crude terms, to the conservative movement by going to venues where I'm not going to be received especially well um, with this message. If I if I was putting out this book and only going to conservative audiences with it, they'd probably have a pretty hostile reception to it because it is uh, very critical of many of the threads that are dominant in the political discourse on the right. Um, I don't think they're ideologically uh, ideologically mooring ideas. I don't think they're really ideas at all. I think they're predispositions. Um, but they're nevertheless uh, powerful organizing forces on the right, and, and I'm critical of that. It's more the book is more about the left than it is about the right. But people who expect a red meat book and and don't want to hear criticism of their own side would be very frustrated by this book if they didn't experience it through that original channel as I am taking this fight to anybody who's willing to have it. Uh, and, and to the extent that it is a fight, um, is, is, you know, is debatable. It's really more a conversation, but it's one that I think is, is pretty interesting to the, to the right in particular, because when I go to right-leaning radio shows, more on two two occasions now out of a few, but more than I'm comfortable with, you know, the conversations opens up. So tell me about the democratic socialists. And I said, well, this is really 100% different from that. It has really nothing to do with it. I'll play ball a little bit, but um, no, I want to talk about social justice. And they're like, okay, well, that's great. Now tell me about AOC. And they, so there's a, there's a breakdown of the conversation here. I don't think uh, maybe they've heard the term before, but they don't really know how it manifests. And so this is a book as much for the right in educational terms to explain to them what this is in the modern world, what the philosophical roots of it are, retributive politics and the history of this country and how it manifests today and what the problem is, um, is more valuable to the right because they don't experience it very often. And these are increasingly prevalent themes in the politics of the left, and they're going to experience it more and more. And it's a four-square attack on this ideology. I mean, I don't, I don't pull any punches. I don't think, um, but that's so. I, I, you know, to the extent that it's been received by the, the right positively, and it has been, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I am um, taking these conversations to the left in in ways that they don't normally have them with the right. I mean, the left think the left does perceive itself to be very open-minded and engaging with the right, but when it comes to nostrums like the social justice movement, which is manifests in ways that are very theological, they are not receptive to criticism. And so to the extent that I'm breaking into safe spaces and, and attacking that process, that uh, those ideas from from within a place that they're not receptive to, that ends up being a confrontation and the right likes that. I mean, you're also going to the safe space that is right-leaning radio. So there's that too. Yeah, but that's um, my safe space. Right. <laughs> See, we, we all have safe spaces. Um, but I, I kind of want to get back to my earlier question, which is something when I'm having more and more conversations with conservatives, you know, over the last, I'd say, three to five years, and why I asked you, you know, what are you hearing from conservatives more generally on this subject, is that I am starting, now I, I will not treat the spittle-flecked emails I occasionally receive as kind of a, a, a state of the movement as it's as writ large. But I am interested with how a lot of conservatives 
in my view, seem to have taken on the, well, they do it, so we'll do it too. Yep. And I, I'm sure that you've heard this, that like, again, the kind of- Unilateral disarmament. Right. I, I believe that that's what you're urging, in a sense. Um, the idea that my identity politics make complete sense, but your identity politics are bad. And so I, I would be interested in how much, he, you know, did you hear that from conservative audiences before you wrote the book? And how much did that change? Because how, how much did that change what you wrote in the book? Because you did say that, you know, you wound up featuring more of the right in the book than you expected. No, I, I heard that after the book. I heard that um, that con- conservative and right-leaning identity politics is reciprocity as is sort of a... Uh, in 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 terms of of you know thermodynamics, that this is an equal and opposite reaction to identity politics on the left, and uh, I think there's probably a grain of truth to that. I think that's an overemphasis and probably an effort to excuse um, what is what is really a, a, a deleterious idea. Uh, conduct of of tribal identity politics is just frankly antithetical, in my view, to the meritocratic egalitarian ideals at the heart of the founding. And I think conservatives are more aware of that than than the left generally, because that is the foundation of their ideology, and they pay lip service at least to it until maybe a couple of years ago. So to the extent that they have to explain themselves. I mean, they can appeal to, well, you know, to to not do this would be to unilaterally disarm. But um, I, I don't find it to be a particularly uh, comprehensive explanation for what's happening. It seems to me like a post hoc excuse um, for for a philosophy that deep down they know is 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 dangerous to the social fabric and counter uh, counter uh, productive for conservative policy goals. What was the biggest challenge you faced while writing this book? Writing a book. I mean, writing a book is hard. Yes, so I've heard, but I, I, I meant larger than the action of writing a book. Um, to be a little bit introspective here, it wasn't really necessarily just about the ideas that I'm trying to get out and trying to get out in ways that people who are otherwise not receptive to them would be receptive to them. And that's a huge challenge, and that's a challenge in terms of crafting an argument. Also, crafting something that is entertaining. I mean, people don't pick up a book that they want to just be, you know, annoyed with, that it's a challenge. You have to write something that reads like like an entertaining experience, like a a, a film or, um, or a script or something that gives you levity and makes you think and and flows in ways that uh, that you know a book should so my hope is that i've written something that is a literary experience as well as is you know pretentious as that sounds um it is it's supposed to be i wanted to make something that would be a commercial success as well as being a thought provoking book and a challenging book and something that society would appreciate ultimately the idea is to create something that you like reading and that's a huge challenge and if i was successful there that that's that would be something i'm the most proud of where do we go from here? Because I feel as if, as you note numerous times, and we've talked about, identity politics is part of the fabric of how America does politics. And we cannot eliminate it. And the idea of identity politics, it's obviously subjective because, you know, as we've been saying that, you know, you think that the identity that you have is very important, but other people's identity is less important. So where do we go from here? Acknowledging that identity politics exists, acknowledging that identity politics has been practiced in politics for centuries, while in your view, identity politics is antithetical to what the founders 
ideals were, not necessarily obviously what they did, but what their ideals were. So where do we yeah. go from here? So in, in other countries, identity politics is just called politics. Right. Because your identity is largely indistinct from the national or subnational character. Um, that was never true of the United States. And so it, we are different. Um, you know, a lot of people res resent that idea, but we are exceptional in that way. Um, identity politics as an organizing principle is really potent and powerful, and so it will never disappear. A little bit too much of it is dangerous and counterproductive and antithetical to your ideas as, a, as an organizing coalition. And that's what I demonstrate with the women's movement, how it tore itself apart as a founding ideal being identity politics. And also, identity politics is is part, again, was a big catch-all for a term that means a lot of different things. Right. I think that that's been my biggest thing is like that I de it's a mass. I mean, I, I say this all the time about like the left and the right that we are including a lot of people yeah, into catch-all terms. For purposes but of English un understanding, speaking. we have we have no choice but to use this as an umbrella term. Um, but while it will never, you know, completely disappear, and I don't think it should, um, what the social justice movement increasingly advocates is the Rawlsian ideal, absent the veil, that institutions need to be dedicated to the conduct of meeting out justice based on group identity and tribalism. And I think that's very, not only flawed, but extremely dangerous. That is also how identity politics is conducted elsewhere in the world. And it's something that we should desperately seek to avoid. Okay. So now I believe I ask you, for your three books that you would recommend. Okay, so if, and I'm gonna try to keep these around this book. Um, I cite it uh, in this book and I recommend it highly, Bruce Bauer's uh, Victim's Revolution, which is uh, also about campus activism, but it's where a lot of these ideas came from. And after this book was written and the manuscript was submitted, I wrote, I read these two books and I was mortified by the parallel thinking in them to the point where I probably would have pulled the manuscript if I'd even known how much we thought very similarly. Um, obviously, Jonah Goldberg's Suicide of the West, which is probably what I think was one of the most important books that was published last year. And um, the... Uh, John Haight and Greg Lukanoff's uh, Coddling of the American Mind, which is a terrifying read. As somebody with kids, it's absolutely horrifying. Okay. I don't know how to raise children without screens. Well, you know, I, something that I find deeply reassuring is that at, at numerous times, we, during the great binge of the 1880s and 1890s, in which every drug had like cocaine or opioids in it, we were giving children heroin. And then those children grew up and we're generally fine. And then we sent them to World War One. <laughs> yeah, so, well. you know, everything sort of always maybe kind of works out. It's not in the end. You know, no one wins. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Noah Rothman. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Noah Rothman for joining us and thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Jeff Geld, our engineer and producer, and The Ezra Klein Show will be back in a couple of days. 